Hi, welcome to the New Story Church podcast. We hope that this week's message encourages you and brings you closer to Jesus. That you said, hey, I'm going to be at New Story Church today, so thank you for joining us. And you came on a great Sunday because we are starting a brand new series called The Father. And in this series, we're going to be talking about God the Father and who he is. Um, and because Jesus makes some pretty powerful statements in the Gospel of John about his relationship to the Father. Jesus says this in John 10:30. He said, "I and the Father are one." Then Jesus goes on to say this in John 14:9, "If you have seen he who has seen me has seen the Father." So Jesus makes this claim that there's this unity, there's this equality between him and the Father, that he and the Father are one, and if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And oftentimes in church, you know, we have no problem talking about Jesus. Jesus is great. He's our Lord and Savior. He gave his life for us. He had brilliant teaching. He healed people. Jesus is awesome. But I've noticed in, in, recent, in recent years, sometimes there's a bit of a, dif- a distance in understanding who exactly God the Father is. But you see, we as a church, and and many Christians believe in something called the Trinity. It's really complex. We could actually do an entire series on just the complexities of the Trinity. But the Trinity simply means that we believe God is one, but he is three in persons. We believe that he exists as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He's one, but he's three. I know, it's complicated. And we can talk about that more in detail at a further time. But this is what we believe. But if, if God the Father is one with God the Son... I think sometimes there are some tensions that arise in our hearts and minds in regards to that. And so that's really some of the stuff that I want us to talk about in this series. I want us to get close to God the Father and gain a better understanding of who he is. And I want us to address some of the tensions that we've had specifically in in maybe even more modern times of kind of understanding who God the Father is. So in weeks two and three of this series, so next week and the week after, we're actually going to be talking about some of the violent uh, depictions of God in the Old Testament, because I know that some, one of the questions that I get frequently from people is, okay, what's with some of these violent depictions of God in the Old Testament? There are people who have questions about this, and sometimes it feels as if, okay, Jesus says he's one with the Father, but the Father's telling people to go slaughter people, and then Jesus, he laid down his life for the sake of his enemies, so how do we reconcile that? So we're going to talk about that in week two and three. But the tension I want to address this week is is the tension of, I think sometimes the reason God feels distant is because we, we miss out on referring to God and knowing God through a relational concept or a relational construct. Here's what I mean by this. We use a lot of religious language to describe God the Father. And some of this language is good language. It's helpful language. It reminds us of what God is capable of. We say things like, God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is immutable. These things are true. And we believe these things. But when we only use those terms to refer to God, I believe it actually starts to create a bit of a disconnect between ourselves and God because we're describing God not based off of who he is, but based off of what he is capable of. And what he is capable of is far outside of the realm of our understanding sometimes. And so I think that there's a bit of a subconscious disconnect that occurs because we've referred to God through all these things that he's capable of, but we haven't really talked about the essence of who he is. And so that's what I really want us to focus on today is see that our God, while he's capable of all of these things that are outside of the realm of our understanding, at his heart, he is a deeply relational God. 
He is a deeply relational God. And just as Jesus is deeply relational and we see him living with the disciples and hanging out with all these different kinds of people, we see throughout the Old Testament that when we look at it closely, that God the Father, as we look closely at him in the Old Testament, he is also deeply relational. In fact, I want us to just wrap our minds around this one concept today is that God desires for humanity to know him. That's what God desires. God the Father desires for humanity to know him. He is a deeply relational God. He is not distant. He actually draws close and he desires, his heart's desire is for humanity to know him. Just as Jesus is deeply relational, he says, I and the Father are one. The Father is also deeply relational and he desires for humanity to know him. And so the way in which we see this through God the Father in the Old Testament is through a concept that might seem a a little bit foreign to many of us today is this, God accommodates. This is what we're going to talk about today is how God accommodates. God will accommodate to the understanding and to the forms and to the structures of the time period of the people that he's communicating to so that humanity can know him. This is a beautiful relational picture of God. He will accommodate to the space and to the forms and to the limited understanding of the human beings in the time period that they live in so that humanity can know him. Here's just an easy example of this. Have any of you been around somebody before who's really good with kids? And sometimes they'll start like acting like a kid when they're with the kids. And you're thinking, would this person just please grow up? Like the, 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 the kids will be shouting and this, this adult will start shouting with the kids. You're like, you were just adding to the volume in the household right now. Please be quiet. The kids will start throwing Play-Doh. This adult will start throwing Play-Doh with the kids. You're like, no, this, the, the kids will be throwing their food. This adult will start throwing food with the kids. You're like, what is wrong with you? You are an adult. But then the kids really like that adult. They want to hang out with that adult. Why? Because that adult is suspending what they know is appropriate behavior as an adult to condescend to the space of a child and accommodate in that space and to relate to the child. And God doesn't act like a child. God doesn't start throwing his food and he doesn't start throwing Play-Doh or anything crazy like that. But God will accommodate to the limited understanding of humanity, to the forms and structures and the places that they're in so that humanity can know him. So I'm going to talk about four different ways that we see God the Father accommodating in the Old Testament scriptures so that humanity can know him. And in this, we will discover the wonderful and beautiful relational heart of God. First of all, God accommodates through relevancy. God accommodates through relevancy. The way that God accommodates and communicates with humanity in the Old Testament scriptures is actually extremely relevant. Now I know. I know that relevant can be a bit of a no-no word in the church world. I've heard people say things before like, well, that church is just trying to be relevant. I've heard that many times before as a criticism of various churches. Some people might have even said that about News Story Church before. I'm not saying anything, but some people may have said that before. They're like, oh no, you know, <laughs> that church is just trying to be relevant. Now, first of all, I want to say something. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about sin. It never says relevancy is a sin, just so that we can all get on the same page as that, all right? So, so some people say, well, they're just trying to be relevant. And don't get me wrong, relevancy that is a deceptive relevancy that is maybe putting on a facade just for the sake of maybe deception, that is wrong. But relevancy for the sake of we are going to be relatable and relevant to make a human connection, I actually believe that that reflects the relational heart of God. To be relevant to the understanding of people in a time period and in a space to connect with humans. I believe that reflects the heart of God. And we see this 
is early on is Genesis chapter one and two. In the very beginning of the scriptures, God actually starts communicating with humanity in an extremely relevant way so that humans can know who he is. Now what's Genesis one and two for those of us who might be new to this whole faith thing? Genesis one and two is the first two chapters in all of the scriptures and it describes the creation, how God created all things. Now, Genesis 1 and 2 has gotten a bad rap in recent history because I think that in times it has been misrepresented and even at times misinterpreted. Um, Don't get me wrong. I'm not an apologist. I'm not going to try to step into that realm, but I don't think that Genesis 1 and 2 was written to tell us how old the earth was. That's, That's just not how I see it. That's not how I interpret it. And I think that there have been times where we have taken the text and we've tried to make it something that it's not. Genesis 1 and 2 was written because God wanted to communicate to humanity that he is the creator of all things and that he created humans in his image to be in relationship with him and be his image bearers and oversee the creation. That's what we see. And then we see God doing this in a way that would have been extremely relevant to the ancient Near East, which is who it was written to at that time period. Here's a great example of this. God gets to the end of creation and look at this in Genesis 2 verses 1 and 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had done. How is this relevant to what was going on in the world at that time period? God rested. Now let me tell you something. I don't think that God had to rest because he was exhausted. I don't think God was like, oh man, I am just, I am beat right now. And I got to run this for all of eternity. I got to take a break. I don't think God was exhausted. I don't think that's why he was resting. I believe that this language of God resting was him accommodating to an understanding of the people of this time period, because here's what people believed in this time period in the ancient Near East. They had these different gods that they would worship. Oftentimes their gods were things like the sun or different animals like cows that they would worship. So God also lets them know in a relevant way, hey, all of those things that you guys are worshiping, go read Genesis 1. I created all of those things. So he's communicating in that way. But then he says, but then the scriptures say that he rested in his creation. Why is this relevant to that time period? Because in that time period, people believed that their gods rested in their temples. So what does God say? Oh yeah, your gods, they're resting in their little temples, but I created all of this. This is my creation and I am resting in my temple, which is all of creation, which is the garden itself. And I have drawn close. Old Testament scholar, John Walton describes it this way. He says, divine rest is the principal function of a temple. And a temple is always where a deity finds Sabbath rest. So the entirety of the cosmos is God's temple. God is using relevant language and relevant concepts and ideas to let humanity know, I created all of this and I am present in all of this and I am close in all of this and I am not distant. Why? Because God uses relevant concepts and ideas to accommodate to the people of his time to let humanity know who he is because God desires to know humanity. Isaiah understood this even better. And later on in Isaiah 66, one, when he said this, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a space that I may rest? He's saying, all of it is mine. I am resting in my temple, which is all of creation. God is letting the people of his time period know through a relevant message, this is who I am. And he draws close to humanity as his image bears and lets them know I've given you responsibility. I've given you a role. I've given you an intention because God desires to know humanity. 
This continues to unravel throughout the scriptures. God accommodates to the understanding of his people and he establishes this thing called a tabernacle, which would have been a little bit more understanding to them that God's dwelling in this space. And then later on, they build this temple because David's like, God, we got to build a temple so you can be like all the other gods and have a temple. And then it gets, it gets really dramatic because years and years after that, uh, Jesus comes back from the grave, the Holy Spirit comes. And then this guy, Stephen, he's a waiter. He's waiting tables for widows and he's preaching the gospel. And he really offends some people in the book of Acts, Acts chapter six and seven. You should read it. It's a really exciting story. And uh, Stephen looks at the, the Jewish leaders of the time period and says, oh yeah, that temple that you think is so special, I'm paraphrasing by the way, the temple you think is so special, it was built by human hands. They're like, what? That's God's dwelling. <laughs> it was built in human hands. And then he gives this whole sermon and it's like a history lesson for them. He said, oh yeah. So guys, just so you know, like this temple that you think is so special, remember what happened before that, uh, how God met Abraham in Mesopotamia and how God was with Joseph in Egypt and how God met Moses through a burning bush. He starts letting them know God is not constricted by that which you made of human hands. All of the earth is his dwelling place. All of it is his temple. God is drawn close to his creation. He's drawn close to all places. And wherever you find yourself, here's the good news of this day. God can meet you wherever you find yourself and he will draw close through a relevant way to let you know who he is because God desires to know humanity. He will draw close. Amen. Secondly, God accommodates through fractured religious structures. God accommodates through fractured religious structures. I want to give you an example of this we see in Genesis chapter 15. God strikes up a relationship with this guy named Abraham. You may have heard his name before. God of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God of Abraham. Abraham's pretty important. God says to Abraham, you know, I'll bless you, so you can blessing all nations. And so God, God gets to know Abraham and it's really funny. Abraham's really late in life and he hasn't had a kid yet. And it looks like it's probably not going to happen for Abraham uh, and, and his wife. And God says, hey, you know, you will have a child and look at the stars. Your descendants are going to be like all of the stars. And Abraham doesn't seem to be phased by this. He seems to be like, oh yeah, you know, you're God. I, I guess you can do that. He doesn't actually say that, but that's kind of the feeling you get in the story. And then God says to him, oh, and by the way, through your people, I'm going to give you some land like all of this land that all these other nations are dwelling in. And Abraham seems like, oh, whoa, whoa, God, that seems, you know, he starts to question God about the land. Isn't it funny how we do that sometimes? We will believe God for something that is really extreme, and then something else that is just as extreme or not as extreme, or we're kind of like, oh, I don't know about that, God. That's how Abraham is. He seems fine with the whole, yeah, you'll miraculously have a child in your 90s with your wife, but this whole thing of you taking over land, he's like, I, I don't know about that. And he starts to question so what does God do? Instead of God just looking at Abraham, which he could have done and saying, hey, I'm God, I'm going to give you this land. He instead accommodates and uses a fractured religious practice or ancient ritual to let Abraham know that he can take him at his word. Look at this in Genesis chapter 15. So he, that is God, said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to them and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. So this is, was an ancient ritual. They would, they would cut animals in half and then one person, you would make a deal with another person. You would walk between the animals 
and then the other person would turn, they would walk between the animals. And that would signify, I am going to hold up my end of the deal. And the other person would then walk between and say, I'm going to hold up my end of the deal. Some people think that this is actually where we get the term cutting a deal. We're going to cut these animals and we're going to cut a deal with one another. So you'd walk between, I'm going to hold up my end. And then they'd walk between and they'd hold up their end. This was an ancient ritual. This was not original to God and Abraham. But then God uses this. Instead of just saying, I'm God, I'll get you the land. They cut this. Abraham falls asleep, and then God does something miraculous. It's really, really cool. Look at this in Genesis 15, 17. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. We believe that that smoking oven and flaming torch was the very presence of God. And so instead of God passing between the animals and then Abraham, God passes between the animals himself. This was called a promissory covenant. And God is basically saying to Abraham, hey, all of this, all of this is on me. It's all on me. Yes, this is a fractured religious structure that other people would use, but God wanted Abraham to know, hey, this is all on me, so I'm going to use something that you would understand and accommodate for your space and let you know that I'm going to get you this land, and it's all on me. It's almost as if this is a foreshadowing to an event that would happen thousands of years later when Christ would give his life and shed his blood and say, it's all on me. These are the kinds of covenants that God, it's all on me. So he crosses between. And you know what's so beautiful about this form of accommodation that God will accommodate even in fractured religious structures to let people know who he is so that he can further his purposes in the world? You know what's so beautiful about that to me? I've had so many conversations with people where they will look back on their life and they'll look at a church or a ministry or an outreach or whatever it is they were involved in and they'll look at a lot of things that were happening there, maybe bad things. Maybe it, was, maybe it was bad or weird doctrine. Maybe it was uh, a, a hurtful relationship or some type of something inappropriate to happen there. I don't know, but they'll look back at a fractured space that they were involved with. And, and they know where they're at with God now. And they'll look back at that and they'll say, I don't know how it happened because there was a lot of junk going on in this space. But I know that I met God there. I know that I experienced God there. You'll look back and you'll say, I, I, I don't know what was happening. I don't know how it happened. There was a lot of garbage going on there. But somehow God met me in that space because this is what God does. God desires so badly for humanity to know him. God loves humanity so much that in spite of sin, he will work through a fractured religious structure to get to you. He will work through a fractured religious structure to get to me, to get to any of you, to get to all of us, just as he did with Abraham and using this old ritual that was outside of the time and space to let Abraham know it's all on me. God will work through a fractured space, a fractured religious structure to get to you because he loves you that much and God desires that much for humanity to know him. And then he will bring you further along to where you are now. And you'll look back and say, I don't know how God got to me there. You know how he got to you there? Because he's God and he desires to know you and he will not allow anything to stop him from getting to you. He will even use fractured religious structures. Thirdly, God accommodates recklessly. God accommodates recklessly. I remember a, a number of years ago, it was like four and a half years ago now, this song came out about the reckless love of God. Some people in the church were really upset about this. I was at a church planter thing and I was standing next to another pastor and they were playing the song and I was like, I'll sing along, I guess. And th this pastor looked at me and he says, I can't stand this song. 
God's love is steadfast. It's not reckless. I was like, you know what? I'm just not going to sing right now because this man is clearly very irritated. And so I am not going to sing. And so I just kind of stood there like a pagan and, and didn't say a word. Uh, but I, I, just, I just stood there. And, uh, and first of all, what's so funny to me is like, can't we think of something better to argue about in the church? Like, can't we think of something more beneficial to discuss? Oh God, they said God's love's reckless. It's not so like, like, can't we, like, don't you have something more important to talk about? Like, I, I don't know. But anyways, and don't get me wrong. I'm not like, that was my favorite song. I didn't listen to it all that often. But I, I understand the sentiment that from a human view, from a human perspective, God's love is reckless. God goes to extremes that we as humans would not typically go to. God does things that don't make any sense to us. And he even does this in his accommodation. It's reckless. It doesn't make any sense. It's outside of our understanding. It's like, it's clunky. It's messy. And we think, man, you know, and I love people, but I don't know if I would go that far. And God will recklessly accommodate. He is so reckless in his accommodation that he will bear the sin of his people. He will bear the sin of his people and he refuses to lobotomize his people, but instead uses loving coercion to bring his people to where he desires them to be. He will, he will bear the sin and maybe even at times carry the appearance of going along with something that we know that he's not a fan of, that we know that he is not for, if it means that he can ultimately get his people to where he wants them to go. Here are two prime examples of this in the Old Testament. First one is polygamy. Anybody, like, honestly, you've been reading the scriptures before in the Old Testament, you thought, okay, David is a man after God's own heart, but he has all of these, like, eight wives, like, and God doesn't seem to say anything about it. Has anybody ever wondered this before, or was it just me before? Like, why, why, why is this okay? Or then you get, to, you get to Solomon, who was blessed with divine wisdom from God, and look at what, he had, Solomon, he had 700 wives, princesses and 300 concubines and his wives turned his heart away. 700 wives and 300 concubines, that's a thousand. That means that if he spent time with one a day, it would take him like almost three years. Then you ever been reading before and you're like, God didn't say a lot. But then when you get to the New Testament and you, and you look at the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul, you learn, oh yeah, God's not a big fan of this. God's not really for this. Because sometimes God will stoop to accommodate to the understanding of his people in that time period if it means that he can ultimately bring them to where he wants them to go. He refuses to lobotomize people. He won't do it. So he uses loving coercion to bring his people along. Another example of this would be the king. We've talked about this before. God was the king of Israel. And they said, no, we want a king. Which reflected an idolatrous heart and a jealous heart. An idolatrous heart. God, we want to figure like everybody else. We don't, we're not good with this whole, you know, God's everywhere thing. We're not good with that, God. We want to figure like everybody else. It also reflected a jealous heart because we want to be like everybody else. Look at this in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 5. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. We want to be like everybody else. So God eventually gives him a king. It doesn't go very well with Saul. It goes well with David pretty well. You know, there's some problems there, but you know, it, but it doesn't go well with Saul. But then, then the kingdom ends up dividing and splitting. But there are times when you're reading and God still works through the king, even though that wasn't his number one desire. There are times where it even almost seems like God is cooperating with the king or God wanted the king to be there. Why? Because God will stoop to accommodate and bear the sin of his people so that humanity can know him and so that he can rescue humanity and bring them to where he wants them to go. He will accommodate recklessly. 
Uh, Greg Boyd describes it this way. He said, it, it, accommodation, it simply means that in breathing these depictions, God had to stoop to accommodate the fallen and culturally conditioned views and practices of his people at the time. These depictions thus stand with the inspired record of God's missionary activity as literary testaments to the fact that God has always been a non-coercive God who is willing to stoop to embrace his people as they are and to therefore bear their sin. He's willing to stoop. He's willing to accommodate. He's willing to carry an image and to go with something to, to a space of we're, we're moving to something beyond this. It's almost like, a, for my Harry Potter fans, it's like, it's like Snape. I just watched Harry Potter for the first time two years ago. I really wasn't into Harry Potter. But then, uh, you know, I was like, okay, we'll watch it because Neil and Lindsay love it. And I realized, oh, J.K. Rowling's a Christian. So, okay, it's all good. We can do it. But anyways, because, you know, growing up. But anyway, so I, 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 I watched it. And Snape has this like, at first you're watching, this guy's evil. He's horrible. He's bad. But he's actually accommodating. He's actually carrying, uh, he's, he's bearing an agenda that he's actually not in line with. He's appearing to go along with something for a greater purpose for the protection of Harry. Sometimes God will stoop to accommodate. It's like, I don't really understand why God would do that or be affiliated with that because he's actually moving along with a greater purpose. He's actually moving humanity towards a better understanding and ultimately pointing to Jesus and ultimately pointing to the cross. You know how sometimes we as humans, we will, we will make a decision like, you know what, I'm not going to do fill in the blank because people might think fill in the blank. I'm not going to do this because people might think this about me. I'm not going to do it because people, uh, people might think that, so I'm not going to do that. God could give a rip about what other people think. God never makes a decision based off of, well, people could think that about me. He never does. He, he, I mean, I, I, I fully believe that, that, that God does not make a decision. You know what? I'm not going to go with this whole king thing because then people might think I'm a weak leader. No, I'm going to stoop to accommodate, to bear the sin of the people at this time, which will ultimately show them their need for Jesus and get to this full revelation of who God is in Christ. We see the fullness of this. This gets really, really cool when you get to Jesus. Because Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that he who knew no sin became sin. So Jesus didn't just bear the fallenness. He became the fallenness. He became sin. Jesus became his very antithesis. He became the fullness of what he was not so that you and I would not have to become sin. It said that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus became the fullness of sin on the cross as God was separated from him so that what? So that you and I would not have to become sin, so that we would not have to become the death and the destruction that sin results in, but so that we could become the righteousness of God and God accommodating recklessly and becoming that which he is not. It was actually a divine rescue mission from a heavenly missionary saying, I am going to become that which I am not so that you don't have to become that. Hallelujah. Amen. So that you can become the righteousness of God, so that you can become who it is that God has intended you and called you to be not to live in that which is beneath your intention. And lastly, God accommodates. Fourthly, I put up three, I don't know. Fourthly, God accommodates through, repeti through repetition. Through repetition. I used to think that I had a really good memory. And then I got married. <laughs> My wife will tell me things. And I will say, you never told me that. This happened just yesterday. We were, uh, I, I said, oh, I'm meeting a friend at 10.15. She said, 10.15? I'm not leaving the house till like 10.40 or 11 o'clock. And I said, 
no, you told me you were leaving at 10. And she said, no, I didn't. I said, yes, you did. She said, no, you didn't. And I said, Kim, you got to understand, when you told me that, I was scrolling Instagram. How can you expect me to be paying attention, you know? But I, I'm just kidding. But I, I, I've noticed my memory is not quite what I thought it was. And I need to be reminded of things. I started using reminders on my phone. I've started using calendars because I need to be reminded of things. God knows that we all need to be reminded of things. That actually, in our limited understanding, that repetition is helpful for us. So God, in, in the scriptures, time and time again, will repeat different things about himself, about who he is. He will, repeat, oh, he will repeat things about his character, who he is, and what his intentions and desires are for humanity and for the world. And I just want us to focus on one of those things today. God communicates time and time again verbally. He communicates time and time again through his actions And he communicates time and time again through people's testimony of who he is in the scriptures, that he is good. God is good. When we get to Genesis chapter one, it's the beginning, we'll go back there. Seven times we read, God saw it and it was good. God saw it and it was good. And God spoke the creation into existence and therefore he spoke that which is good. His desire is to create that which is good. His desire is to pour out his goodness. His desire is for us to experience that goodness. And as he dwelled in the garden with humanity, his goodness was fully alive. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw all that he made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. It was very good. God wanted to make something abundantly clear that he creates that which is good And his intentions are good. But then sin entered the world and that goodness became fractured. There was a separation that happened. And God continues to go on this rescue mission, accommodating to let humanity know who he is and bring humanity into a relationship with him to restore the good image, the image of God that had been placed on humanity, and then to restore the goodness of creation. And so then God goes so far with this. He goes so far that the very speech of God, the word of God that spoke creation to existence, we then read in John chapter one, which John chapter one is, you know, first day of reading in our focus 21 days of prayer and fasting here at New Story. So today you should read John one if you want to do that with us. And we would love for you to do that with us. But John one, we read that the word became flesh. So that which spoke the good into existence then became flesh, which then means that Christ is a representative of the good. That Christ will then, even in moments, as we read in the, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he will break religious traditions like the Sabbath to heal a person because why? He will work and fight for that which is good and he will not let anything stop him from doing that because he is good. That's why when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, we are actually seeing in Jesus the very goodness of God invading earth. Heaven has come to earth in Christ and so the goodness can move forward. That's why the resurrected Christ Christ is in a garden in John chapter, later on, later on in John chapter 20, 21, we see, we see Christ in the garden. He's in the new garden, bringing new creation, restoring the good. And so therefore, as God's spirit is at work within us, the spirit that was hovering over the surface of the deep in John chapter one, that created that which was good. We are then empowered by the spirit who is good because he is God to then fight for and restore the good. So in a world that is fractured, in a world that is broken, in a world where there is despair, 
in a world where there is separation, as Christ draws close and we know the Father who is a good Father, Psalm 106 says, Lord, you are good. As we know the one who is good, we should allow his good spirit to transform us and restore us to the image of God that we were intended to live in. And then from that, we then work to fight to perpetuate the good, to bring hope, which is good, to bring life. It's not just about results. It's about an essence. It's about who we are. And the spirit of God, which comes from the goodness of God, empowers us to bring forth that goodness. God is good, and he's equipped us and empowered us as humanity to fight for and to perpetuate the good. God the Father desires for humanity to know him. And we see him doing that through accommodating. God accommodates through relevancy. He will come to know you wherever you find yourself. He will meet you where you are at. God accommodates through broken religious structures wherever you find yourself. Don't, there's even times where we aren't always going to get it right at New Story Church either, but God can still meet you in this space because God will work through anything to get to you. God accommodates. God, uh, God, God will accommodate recklessly. He who became, he who knew no sin became sin so that you could know him. He will do it recklessly. It doesn't make any sense, but he, he won't let anything stop him from getting to you. And God accommodates through repetition. He lets us continuously know who he is. And so here's what I want you to know today. I want you to know that he is good and that by his spirit, you can know the one who is good in Christ. As you come to know Christ, you're given his spirit. You know the one who is good. And then we are empowered to work for the good.